I was young, you know what I mean? I wanted to have fun, I enjoyed having fun. And maybe I took it further, whatever. People know who I am and people know I have money. And people know I'm young, you know what I mean? So they put the two together, young, black, single, with money. 90%, 80% of the people believe what they read. And, I mean, that, that has a big effect on people. If they ever got a chance to know me, they would think differently. They would think totally differently. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of No Happy Endings. Today, Dave Zirin and I are going to drop into one of our shared favorite sports documentaries of all time, Barbara Koppel's 1993 film, Fallen Champ, about Mike Tyson. This is such an interesting documentary on so many levels in terms of looking at the rape trial with Desiree Washington, how divisive that trial was, the support that Mike Tyson got, uh, and really the abuse that Desiree Washington suffered and a real exploration into Mike Tyson's iconography, how it was built up, how it was torn down, how this incredibly damaged kid from Brownsville was so damaging to so many people and the support structure that he received up in the Catskills. I mean, it sort of deconstructs the whole mythology of Mike Tyson. And Koppel even delves into rape prevention clinics talking about groupie culture and how at the trial it was sort of suggested by Tyson's defense attorney that there was something cultural about his sexual harassment of women. Uh, There's just so many layers to this film, and especially for its time, it just seems so ahead of its time in the complexity and nuance that it affords all of the people that it's talking to. Uh, Leon Gast, uh, most famously known for his Academy Academy Award-winning film, When We Were Kings, also worked on this film. Uh, It's really, really something to check out if you haven't seen it already. I think it stands up incredibly well. So I hope you enjoy Dave Zirin and I talking about Fallen Champ. So you rewatched one of our shared favorite documentaries of all time, or I guess sports documentaries of all time. What did you think? Barbara Koppel's Fallen Champ. Uh, yeah. Wow. I mean, I, it's the first I, I watched documentary obsessively in the early 1990s. I had an old videotape of it. I would show it to people when they would come by and and just to get their feedback on it. I was a teenager at the time. It was this political documentary about somebody who I felt an affinity for and Mike Tyson and it was a critical documentary. So it had a very strong effect on me and my my consciousness. Um, I I was easily the first piece of uh, feminist uh, you could, uh, art or film that I had ever seen. Um, and it made me think about things in a very different way. Um, so it had such a powerful effect on me in the early 90s when it came out. Fast forward to today, first time I've seen it in so many years. And I really think it's both it's ahead of its time for better and, and worse. Hmm. Um, I think it's totally ahead of its time in terms of it wrestling with toxic masculinity. And this idea that um, Mike was somebody who's, uh, who, whose misogyny really led to his downfall and to people around him who enabled that misogyny led to his downfall. 
um, I think that that thesis that runs through it and it is very powerful. Um, I also think it's shockingly kind of colorblind as a documentary. Um, mm. It doesn't really deal with questions of race and racism until you get to the court case. And right. there it deals with it in terms of what his lawyer argued and then what uh, what the prosecution argued against him. And then, of course, dealing with what Farrakhan was saying about the the rape. And, you know, with all, race is very tied up in that and the treatment of black women by black men. But nothing is really said explicitly about, from a, from a perspective of race, about, you know, growing up in Brownsville in utter poverty, then moving to the Catskills in what looked to be an almost entirely all-white environment, uh, yeah. being raised by these two white parents, Customato and and the woman whose name I cannot remember. Camille uh, Ewald. Yes, yes, mother and, his mother and father. Um, and yet it's coded in there. Like when one of the sports writers says uh, he was raised there like a pit bull. Yeah. Um, he was bred to be a fighter, raised like a pit bull. Um, Teddy Atlas says uh, that he was teased and called Mighty Joe Young in school. Mighty Joe Young, of course, being uh, like a King Kong type figure, a gorilla. Yep. You know, but, but there's no um, kind of racial analysis of what that might have or must have done to this young man growing up in this environment, um, which I thought was a little bit blind. Um, in terms of some of the things that were being coded in terms of what were being said about him. But all in all, um, oh, and then there was, I just have to throw this out there, there were a couple of little delights in watching it after 30 years. Um, first was just out of nowhere in 1992, seeing that Kimberly Crenshaw was one of the people speaking. Kimberly Crenshaw, of course, has become very renowned for uh, critical race theory and um also, the the um, the word and term intersectionality, which she's largely credited for coining, to see her as one of the the people speaking in this setting of, of black women discussing the case, I thought was fascinating. And then there was the bizarre moment of seeing one of Tyson's accusers being Aaron Cosby. Yes. Um, of course, I looked it up immediately, and yes, that is Bill Cosby uh, and Camille Cosby's uh, daughter. And uh, to see her talking about rape, given what we now know about her father, was, was, was certainly jarring. But I guess that's my broad take on it. I mean, it's totally people should totally watch it. Tyson people should totally watch it. There's a ton of hagiography that's coming out about Tyson, Jamie Foxx in a movie, other documentaries. But this is one that deals with the question of, of rape, women's rights, sexual assault in a way that's very smart and very interesting. But I do think it's overly race blind in terms of understanding him and his trajectory. So that's my take. That was a long take, but that was my take. No, 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 that was great. And I'd like to get into the granular level of kind of the way this film was broken up into the different chapters of Titan's life. Obviously, this starts in 1993, so it's beginning with Tyson in jail. He's not going to get out for another two years. So it, it begins with sort of Kevin Rooney, his professional trainer for mm -hmm. the first segment of his career, summarizing the promise and the tragedy of Tyson, that he represents both to such extreme degrees. And then we just get a glimpse of Desiree Washington 
who he was convicted of raping, almost as this kind of cipher. I mean, I agree the the feminist take on this from the women that you described, there's a rape prevention group talking about it, about the rape case and the way um, the court case was playing out, the way his defense attorney was framing him as almost like an act of cultural, like this was a black cultural thing, mm-hmm. the way he was talking to her and stuff. Um, you have Joyce Carol Oates in there, which was very interesting. Um, but I, why don't we just go through the film? Because I think that I agree with you. I mean, I was 14 when I saw this, and I watched it all the time before I would imitate Mike Tyson and go running in the morning at 4 in the morning because I thought, what a crazy thing to do. Um, was the dialectical approach of this film, as much as it does feel very feminist, in framing their side of things, you do get the counterpoint also of a security team being hired almost Mm -hmm. explicitly to keep women away from him. And uh, ex-girlfriends of his saying, uh, countering the rape prevention people saying, just because women come up to a superstar athlete and say, I'm so happy that you won whatever it is you won in, in your great victory doesn't mean they want to sleep with you. And the ex-girlfriends are saying, and the limo driver is saying, when I get the underwear from women every day, it's pretty clear they don't want to talk about boxing. But maybe, I mean, I get, I get the feeling that the way Barbara Koppel was showing this in 1993, this is what I mean by being it's ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. And the way it's being read, it would be read in 2020 might be a little different from how it was read in 1993 when it first played. Like to have the bodyguard say something like, um, if you're close enough to me to grab, then I can grab you. Yes, that's not yeah. exactly what, but that's basically what he says. Like if you're close enough to grab, to be grabbed, then you're going to get grabbed. Um, that, that, that's, that's pretty harrowing. And I don't know if people would have seen that as harrowing in 93 or just been like, yeah, that's groupie culture, I guess. But certainly in this age of, of Me Too, it's, it's beyond horrifying. It's this idea, oh, you have the right to physically grab somebody because they're right. close enough to you. And then, this is another thing, like reading it in 2020, I mean, Alan Dershowitz, right. uh, basically, with, without having any legal knowledge whatsoever, just bloviating, describing what happened to Desiree Washington as groupie sex, and at first right. it seems like he's just explaining what groupie sex is in the abstract, but then he goes straight for the jugular and says, Mike Tyson shouldn't be in jail for groupie sex, saying that. Mm-hmm. And i got to say, like, it's very hard to watch that in 2020 and not think about who we know Alan Dershowitz to be, this uh, Jeffrey Epstein uh, compatriot who likes getting massages in his underwear. I mean, so there's this web by, by underage girls. So there's this web of toxic masculinity in the film that I really do think Barbara Koppel was trying to put forward, but that maybe audiences in what you said, 93, mm-hmm. um, were not made ready to, to see or understand the way we would understand it in 2020. Well, Dershowitz actually characterized it, not in the film, but separately as the greatest miscarriage of justice that he had ever witnessed. <laughs> in this saying that in this country, yeah, that's quite a bold statement. Yeah, shocking. Um, so I mean, why speaking don't we start of, with? Speaking of shocking, I just have to throw this in just sure. because I don't want to forget it um, as we go on. 
is I, I, I you know, couldn't help myself. I did a Google search of Desiree Washington after watching the film. And the first thing to come up is a video that Mike Tyson did over the summer that's, that's like this handmade camera, this guy talking to him, like a five-minute video that just says Mike Tyson talks about Desiree Washington. Just made over the summer. And it's pretty upsetting. Um, like the, the guy interviewing him is just basically a Tyson groupie himself, basically. And he's just like, you know, like, let's keep it. He's saying, let's keep it real. I know you didn't uh, violate this woman. You know, that's not who you are. You're Mike Tyson. You never had to do anything like that. And Mike Tyson says back to him, oh, I violated women. Of no. course I violated women. But I didn't violate her. But, yeah, I violated women. And the guy has no response. He's just like, um, uh, and then he quickly goes to another subject. Jesus. But it's, it's, a, it's a pretty harrowing thing to watch. And then you keep in mind that, you know, even though Mike Tyson is saying this stuff on video, anybody can see it, there's still this process of him being rehabilitated. To a profound, I mean, he was a cartoon on the Cartoon Network a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, Jamie Foxx is going to be him in a movie, and it just... It, it's just, I, I don't know, it, it's just it's a hell of a statement that he still has so much cultural currency. Well, I went a little further in trying to find out where Desiree Washington is, I, not with any aim of contacting her, because I think she clearly wants to have a private life after this case. I mean, geez, she was 18 years old at the time that this happened when she was mm-hmm. a contestant in the Miss Black America pageant in Indianapolis at the Black Expo. Um, but I think from what I gleaned from a more in-depth search was I know where she's located and I think she's put, put herself together. She's a professor now and she's married and it, it looked like she's really put her life back together and seems to be productive and things seem to be working out really well for her. And it fascinates me in this age that, like she's not given any interviews. She's not. There's no book about this. She just disappeared afterwards to private life. And correct me if I'm wrong, but never brought civil suit against Tyson. No, I don't believe she did. I don't no. believe she did. And so, and that that really runs against like, and this is why I think Barbara Koppel was doing this like very very smartly in the film is it runs against, like, everybody, when they talk about groupies and groupie culture, there's always that explicit, uh, this is about uh, these women being gold diggers and going for for the bucks, and, and this, it's all like a game to, to entrap them. And, you know, that one bodyguard talks about, like, how he has, you know, throwing women out of the limousine um, and all this stuff like that. And the the the, the character that's portrayed of Desiree Washington in the film I mean, is unassailable in terms of her youth, in terms of her innocence, the response of her, like, uh, heartbreaking. I, I would challenge anyone not to cry, seeing her father t- well up and talk about how his daughter can't hug him the same way anymore. No, she, she was a Sunday school teacher. She volunteered for special events for troubled youth. Um, she she wanted to be president. A, she wanted to be president, she said, as she as she spoke at a, a beauty competition, um, I think in subsequent years it has been raised that she made an allegation against like a Rhode Island basketball team for a previous instance of sexual assault, and I think the insinuation was her father 
being very religious, that once it was discovered that she was sexually active, to hide from that, she made this allegation of rape there and that that was protected from being entered into evidence in the type trial. Did you ever, like at that time, when you were researching about it since, hear about those kind of innuendos and rumors and stuff? Yes. Yeah, I did. And I, um, I mean, I discounted them. I, I, I agreed with the court's decision to keep them out as not necessarily material to what we're talking about here because the Tyson story and his, like, what's so crazy about this case is like, I, I'm actually convinced that Mike Tyson thinks he did nothing wrong. Yeah. And, and it's like the stories of what actually happened in that in that bedroom, which sounds like, you know, two minutes of a horrific encounter, you know, an act of violence um, from, from her perspective, a groupie sex from his perspective. It's the same story of what took place. And Tyson's response is, I should have walked her down to the limo. Right. Like, that was his first response. And not realizing that you take somebody, I mean, Desiree Washington, I believe, was five feet tall and weighed 100 pounds. Yeah. And he basically threw her around, and and when it was done, threw her out the door. And I so I think that there's <laughs> there there's guilt there that is that you can establish even in this sort of he said she said situation because they're both saying the same thing. Yeah, and I mean also just the detail of what she testified to. Saying, saying that Tyson said to her as this was taking place, "Don't fight me, mommy." It's oh. a pretty like chilling line. And then, and then on the other side, there was people who were supporters of Tyson who who said, according to her testimony, that she went to the bathroom when she entered his his hotel at two or three o'clock in the morning and removed her panty liner, and clearly that meant she wanted it or something like that. Like it's. It's really horrific the extremes that people go to to defend Tyson when I think this movie very effectively lays out from one of his first caseworkers when he's maybe 12 years old that women were always a problem for him. That, that yeah. he, in school, he is making advances toward people. He famously made an advance toward his first trainer, Teddy Atlas's uh, niece, I think, but is that who it her. was? They they never say explicitly in the film, at least. Uh, yeah, I believe I, I believe subsequently it's been reported that it was his niece, or he's even said that it was his niece. But mm. it was um, not just verbally harassing her, but I think grabbed her as well. Um, but it seems like all the way through, you have people that were witnessing Tyson um, making advances on women. And this was somebody that before boxing allowed him to have a degree of celebrity and, and money, um, had enormous difficulties with women. He was incredibly shy. He was always told that he was ugly and always felt very unattractive. So, I mean, going from one extreme to the other with, you know, by 17, 18 years old, 18 years old, he's on the cover of sports illustrated. Um, yeah, yeah. And and that's what's so I think one of the sad macro things is he talks about um in the film about not um wanting um fame anymore. And about mm-hmm. how he felt like it destroyed his life. And then today it seems like 
all he's about is trying to recycle his own fame. Yeah, and you were you were saying earlier just about some of his supporters, like that interviewer with him talking about Desiree. I found I don't know if you went to the Mike Tyson or saw the the Tyson one man performance that Spike mm-hmm. Lee directed for HBO. The whole audience was that. The whole audience was cheering him saying disparaging things about women and specifically Desiree Washington in a way that it was like a celebration of toxic masculinity. It was really disturbing, and I couldn't understand how Spike Lee participated in it, frankly. Like, it was just so tone deaf. Yeah, that's really harrowing. I mean... And that, and that was very hard to watch for one person's show. And I just, it, it's worth a whole another discussion. And I know there's another documentary being done about Tyson right now. I wonder what that's going to look like. But it's, it's, it's worth like that discussion about why it is people maintain this fascination with him. And well, could you, could you, I'm sorry to interrupt. Could you tell me about that documentary? I'm not familiar with that. Oh, all I know is that, um, I, after I watching Falling Champ, I, I reached out to uh, Kimberly Crenshaw hmm. to be like, what, what was that like to be in that documentary? And, you know, and she, she one thing she said was, you know, it's like, they, you know, you get interviewed for a long time. They only use a small portion of it. Um, and she said, and, you know, she did a little reminiscing about, and the film did this as well, about 1992, come out of Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill and, just the, the the fissures that were taking place in the black community with black women asserting uh, their rights to personhood. Um, and she just said that she'd been asked about doing this big documentary about Tyson, about being filmed for it, and she turned it down. Um, and so then I said, oh, I didn't know they were making one. Interesting. But, I mean, would that, would that surprise you? I mean, it seems like there's an <laughs> inexhaustible thirst no, it doesn't surprise me. Knowing I, more about it, yeah, I just wonder what else is left left in the record to account for here. I mean, with two, I think two memoirs of his, six biographies or so, numerous documentaries. Uh, but I mean, this is the one that that stays with me the most. I just rewatched yeah. it this morning, and I don't know, like like you were saying. The, uh, the the sort of dialectical approach of of just how many people are offering one point of view and then it gets countered um, was a big deal to me at fourteen to see that way of structuring an argument and mm. carrying it through to get him from ch- uh, such a horrible childhood at one seventy eight Amboy Street where he ended up in Brownsville after I think his mother lost her job and then got on welfare over there. Um, and then the famous, you know, you're seeing the pigeons there. I don't know if you notice Shannon Briggs at the beginning when they're in front of yeah. Tyson's Boris is just standing there because he was g- growing up there with his blonde locks. It was interesting to see him there. What do you what do you make about the origin story of Tyson? As you mentioned, race is such an interesting factor with him growing up in Brownsville. I believe has the highest. High density of low-income housing in the United States, followed by Spanish Harlem. So he's coming out one, coming out of one of the worst dungeons that America can dish out on a kid. Yeah. Um, and then this whole white savior narrative mm-hmm. of Customato. So 
why don't you just walk me through just your thoughts about where he grew up? I don't know if you've been around that area before. Yeah. Yeah, I'm from New York City. Um, I had a friend who lived in Brownsville. Um, he would have to actually meet me at the train station uh, to walk me over to his house uh, because you needed to know somebody. This is like, this is pre-gentrification in New York. So, you know, it was, it was recognized as dangerous, not only by, you know, white outsiders like myself, but by people who live there, like an understanding that, you know, you would really need somebody if you wanted to walk the streets of Brownsville. And, you know, and you felt it. You know, you felt that it, this was a place that, you know, had, had a more than a hint of danger um, because of poverty. Um, you know, meanwhile, the, I feel almost obligated to say this, uh, the real criminals were on Wall Street at the time, looting the economy, whatever, moving on from that. Uh, right. But then it, it is, it, and what I remembered also is that it wasn't just, uh, it was a white, it's a white savior narrative, but the film did a little bit of a good job showing this, but I thought it could have done it more and more explicitly. It was contractual. It was mm. transactional. Uh, it wasn't, you know, Customato, you know, portraying him as almost like he's running a, a boy's town up there or something like that. But it's like it was because they saw within Mike Tyson an absolutely destructive force. Uh, somebody who could not only be a heavyweight champion, but needed to fight in such a way that was not necessarily, you know, the, uh, the, the, the gentleman's rules of boxing, so to speak. You know, like, like he, he was going to fight in a different kind of way. He was going to fight angry, aggressive, and scared. And there seemed to be an effort to not worry about keeping him angry, aggressive, and scared uh, during his time up there. And so I feel like the white savior narrative, the almost, uh, we, we, what, you know, the next generation would know as the blind side narrative, um, is something that had a, had a sort of nasty underbelly to it in a way that was extremely transactional. Because all his relationships with these father figures was transactional. You know, Jimmy Jacobs. I mean, these guys were making millions of dollars from Mike Tyson. And there's this effort in the film to say, like, these were the responsible guardians and the responsible stewards, and then the Vipers came in, Robin Givens and Ruth Roper and Don King. And, you know, I, I can't necessarily <clears throat> vouch for how fair that is. I mean, King speaks for himself. Forget about that. But, sure. you know, Robin Givens is a very interesting figure that I think is portrayed pretty unfairly in the film. Um, and And then at the same time, you know, I, I don't know Bill Caton. You know, I don't know Jimmy J. You know, the nature of those relationships, like I said, are very highly transactional, but put in a savior narrative. And I think that could have been explored much more closely. The one line in it that, that, that really sticks with me is um, when they talk about Tyson, they talk about him in very animalistic terms. Like, we need to get him from the gym to the bed to the gym to the bed because he's going to lash out and hurt whoever, you know, anybody else, yeah. you know, so it's like, like trying to, to treat him in a way, in a way that sounds a lot more like pit bull fighting. And I think at one point he is referred to as a pit bull in the yeah. film. And there's no effort to really understand like, wow, this is obviously a very damaged person from his time in Brownsville. What are, what are we doing to address that? Yeah, I find, I find there, there is this fascinating 
fascinating contradiction in Tyson as he emerges from Brownsville on the one hand as being this lisping, preyed upon, vulnerable, ultra-sensitive, quite bright in many ways kid who's mercilessly picked on, can never defend himself until famously his pigeon gets its head twisted off in front of him and finally he lashes out and very quickly he becomes this incredible victimizer and Mm -hmm. loves to go out on the attack, loves to rob people, often doing it with a gun. They open the film with him describing um, how exciting it was and pleasurable Mm -hmm. to rob people, um, many times targeting the most vulnerable people he could find, old women on a bus, Mm -hmm. you know, that sort of thing. Um, Also in his memoir, he describes being... Well, he described it strangely as there was an attempt to sexually molest him while he was growing Mm -hmm. up as a kid. Um, I followed up on that, and he confirmed he was molested by an older male figure. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about delicately is, as you say, they don't go very close into the Customato 14-bedroom, Victorian bedroom house, which he moves into, which is a warehouse for, I believe it was described as um, Jack Newfield in in the documentary says, it's like a halfway house for juvenile delinquents. Um, Given that Floyd Patterson went on the record to say um, to Gay Talese, and it was also in, uh, I think, W.P. Stratton's biography on Floyd, Floyd Patterson, that there was a sexual advance, what he interpreted as a sexual advance by Customato while they were working together, and I believe Floyd was a teenager at the time. How does that change the tonality of an older guy not married to this woman, Camille Ewald, who's actually his brother's wife's sister? Um, There's Mm. been a number, number of allegations that Camille was sort of a beard for a guy that was never known to have any involvement with women. Likewise, Jimmy Jacobs was alleged to be married, well, married, but married in a kind of beard situation. Um, Jim Jacobs and Customato lived together for 10 years, according to a Customato biography that came out some years ago by uh, Scott Weiss. Um, doesn't the tenor of this household and the white savior narrative become something much darker and potentially far more problematic um, given some of those facts? Yeah, I mean, I got to be honest, you know, I'm not necessarily comfortable commenting on that stuff uh, just because this is the first I'm hearing about it. Um, so, so I had to delve too deeply in there um, because, you know, the charges are so incredibly incendiary. Um, I, I will say that people who are abused tend to become abusers. That's the vicious cycle that we talk about. Now, where the site of Mike Tyson's abuse was, whether it came from Brownsville or came from the Catskills, you do see those patterns of behavior uh, come come up with themselves. Um, violence against women, sexual assault, uh, it, it's it's something that doesn't come out of nowhere. And not everybody from Brownsville I mean, as someone who's been to Brownsville, I had a friend from Brownsville all in, during the, the roughest times of Brownsville in the 1980s after the crack epidemic. They're wonderful people in Brownsville. 
amazing sure. people in Brownsville. So sure. it's not enough just to say, well, he's from Brownsville and that's how this happened. Or his mom was on welfare and that's how this happened. There's usually something much, much darker there that explains it. And, you know, maybe someday we'll get it through to that. Um, the part about custom auto, maybe you could help me answer this, but I've always found it interesting. Everything I've ever heard about custom auto, they say, you know, Floyd Patterson, uh, Torres, and then Mike Tyson. I mean, for a guy who was in the game for, you know, almost 50 years, I mean, that's actually a pretty thin list for somebody who's deemed this this legend. Or are there more people that I'm just not... It just seems like there's something that's not being told there. Well, he he had his gym, the Gramercy Gym, which again in the biography of Cuss was referred to as the candy store, which has a kind of ominous tone to it. Um, You know, I think he leaves Manhattan, has a strange background. He had a brief stint in the military. His military, military records were sealed after his death as were his military records, sorry, military records, medical records were sealed, and FBI files, because, I mean, he was very, very left-wing. I think Tyson called him a communist, so I can imagine during the whole McCarthy era, he must have run into some problems if he was vocal about his politics. Um, But, I mean, where did he get this Victorian house from? Because purportedly he never took money from any of the fighters that he trained. Where did he get the gym from? <laughs> like, uh, I, I also, also he was going to go into the priesthood initially after, after he left, I think he was raised in the Bronx. Um, he's an extraordinarily mysterious figure in that he sort of emerges and has these champions, but you're right. Like, it's not like he's an insider in the game. He's very much an outsider. He's very publicly anti-mob, even though mm-hmm. private, privately he was dealing with the mob. So a lot of contradictions there. Um, and I agree with you about Tyson. I mean, one of the quotes that always stood out for me as the most arresting that he ever gave was, I think, going into the Lennox Lewis fight at a press conference Somebody said, put him in a straitjacket, and he said, I'll fuck you till you love me, faggot. And I asked him directly where that came from, because the construction of that is so chilling. And he said, I was, you know, I'm always quoting people. That was quoting my mother and Customato. And I thought, boy, like, <laughs> that is a lot to unpack. That is a lot to unpack. I mean, I don't even know what to make of that. I mean... Because first of all, it's either true or it's not true. And whether it's true or not true, that's pretty harrowing. I mean, it's harrowing if it's something that he brought out of of whole cloth as much as it's harrowing if it was something, in fact, he heard from those folks. Right, right. Either way, Um, it's pretty intense. And it sounds like, I mean, it's interesting. So we get taken to the Catskills. Um, He goes to try on very dark place, you know, about as about the worst place to go as a juvenile delinquent growing up in New York was to be sent to Tryon. He finds a mentor figure in Bobby Stewart, an ex-fighter. I mean, there's a fighter who worked with Customato that's not particularly noteworthy, but mm-hmm. Stewart sees the promise of Tyson, sees him 
applying himself and his intelligence to reading, jumping grade levels in a matter of weeks, and makes the introduction to Customato, who says famously upon seeing him, I've seen the next world champion, the next youngest world champion, which is an interesting quote because I clung to that a lot when I was a kid about how incredible Customato must be. And I've heard subsequently from people that knew Customato is he said it all the time. It just didn't come through most of the time, but here it did. Mm. But it wasn't an unusual thing for him to say to young fighters of promise because he wanted to build them up. And you can see in the, the Tyson documentary by James Toback, speaking of another uh, person who's not aged well <laughs> with mm-hmm. their past history, um, that that eats at Tyson a lot, that how did Customato see in me a future world champion? How did he know? So it seemed like it was almost, Cuss was playing the role of like a fortune teller, where he's found somebody who needs to hear that just like I'm sure many of the kids that he was meeting were coming from very difficult, challenging circumstances and needed to hear somebody believe in them and provide hope and promise. Well, quick quick aside on James Toback. I mean, he also wrote something called, he was also somebody who was friends and frankly a little bit obsessed with Jim Brown. Hmm. And he wrote a book, Jim, a very thin book, which is worth reading called Jim the author's self-centered memoir on the great Jim Brown, which came out in the early 70s. And in the book, James Toback has this obsession with black masculinity and black sexual potency. Hmm. And it reaches the level of disturbing. And it's this idea that, you know, to be a real man, I mean, it requires putting women in their place by any means necessary. And he saw that in Jim Brown, except he wanted Jim Brown in the book. There are these yearnings where he wants Jim Brown to be even more assertive, more of an ass kicker, more of this kind of black exploitation Superman than even he's being. Um, and, but here in Mike Tyson, you know, Jim Toback also had him in his film, black and white. Yep. Um, you know, and so there's, where he plays a yeah. professor of African American studies in the film, yeah. if I remember. That's right, I forgot. That. Jesus. Right. So, so there's there's a lot to unpack with James Toback too, and as you referenced, he's also been brought out in this Me Too era. Although, you know, the big shock would have been if his name didn't come up, given uh, his history, his picadillos, and the like. Uh, but, sure. but yeah, so so I mean, at least I think that provides some connective tissue, though, of understanding the the obsession with Mike Tyson that people still have is that there is this, I think, white obsession with black masculinity, black potency. There is an obsession in the black community with male hero worship. And then there are black women trying to find their voice and being treated as expendable by both parties. And one of the great changes in the Black Lives Matter movement, I think, has been the leadership of black women um, being, um, expressing themselves and asserting their humanity in the face of not only white supremacy, but also in the face of feeling like in their broader community that they've been marginalized and not heard. Right. Right. Well, and so move, yeah, moving out of sorry, moving out of the Catskills. Um, I mean, there's that fascinating footage. Just one last thing where. 
some documentary filmmaker caught Tyson in mm. 1980, and you see interviews with him. I mean, it's incredible footage to see him training. Jack Newfield says meeting him at that time, like coming into contact with Barishnikov or John Coltrane or Bruce Springsteen or reading Norman Mailer, just mm-hmm. an unequivocal genius. Um, and I, I wonder what you make of, you know, there's this kind of demarcation point with Teddy Atlas and we're seeing them together at the Junior Olympics in Denver. Um, Tyson is winning winning unbelievably quickly, I think 10-second knockouts at that point. Like, he's such a phenomenon at that time. I mean, it almost seemed as if, like, I'm, I mean, I was not conscious at that time. I, mean, I was born in 1979, so he's doing this when I'm one. But, I mean, it makes even Michael Jordan or LeBron James, it sort of trivializes them, like what he seemed to represent at that time on some level. Did you? Yeah. Did, was that your sense? Yeah. No. I mean, there's. Um, I think that's another thing that we can point to is that, you know, we're a country that's always because I think we're a youth obsessed country. We're also obsessed with the idea of the prodigy. And right. you know, Michael Jordan is somebody who people never really knew his greatness until he was actually in the NBA. You know, the old joke being the only person ever stopped Michael Jordan from scoring was Dean Smith. Uh, LeBron James, I mean, certainly somebody who, you know, we never really got to see, you know, he was almost like a rumor, like a Paul Bunyan story until he actually entered the NBA. And of course he had his growing pains. Mike Tyson is somebody, and I I get the comparisons to people like Springsteen. It's like there, there are those folks who you only have to see them once and you realize that you're seeing something that's utterly new. It's the shock of the new. And Mike Tyson, and also there, there, there's our obsession with boxing as a culture, like when, you know, one, one, one person against another person in a ring and everything that that connotes for people. And like Joyce Carol Oates, I think, says it well about, you know, it becoming a channel for people's frustrations, for their rage. And so you can imagine, like, if someone who's your channel, your avatar for your own frustration, anger, rage, violence, someone who perfectly epitomizes it. You know, not somebody who's so pretty like Ali or somebody who's just throwing out a heavy jab like Larry Holmes, but somebody who is actually the epitome of that rage and that anger then gets caught for rape. I mean, think about what that the, the psychological break that creates among a lot of the fandom out there to the point of which they're saying things that are completely irrational in defense of him. You know, it's, it's not that different from a Trump phenomenon mm. where you have all these Bible belters who, you know, Trump gets, you know, Trump is currently, as we're doing this podcast, trying to undermine the Constitution and democracy in this country. Uh, he's been used of sexual assault more than two dozen times. And yet, you know, while some evangelicals, like some, a minority of them, have broken from Trump, the overwhelming majority, it only binds them closer to him. Mm. And I think we yeah. got a similar a similar story here. No, and it's it's fascinating because, I mean, we're going to get to Trump because the apogee of Tyson's professional career, and I think the other thing that you left out, apart from LeBron and Jordan stuff, is just Tyson at such a young age is generating money 
that's yes. so wildly disproportionate to any other superstar athlete. Um, as well as disproportionate you know, to the time that he puts in to earn that money. Like they mentioned him making right. a quarter million dollars a second against I, Michael Spinks. I mean, to be that destructive and to take care of your business in such short order, I mean, it captured the imagination. Yeah, I mean, $21 million at that time, the the biggest art sale in the world was Van Gogh for $51 million for irises, and even that was sort of complicated because it, it wasn't a real – it was kind of a manufactured sale. It ultimately dissolved, but you're just like, geez, Tyson needs to fight for four minutes, and what he's putting on this canvas is worth more than any other artistic expression in human history in terms mm-hmm. of how we're commodifying it. And, and he's only 21 years old. You know, if he, if we have another 10 years of him in his prime, this is going to be the first billion dollar athlete mm-hmm. at that time. It's hard to remember. Um, he was also one of the most marketable athletes commercially. He was endorsing Diet Pepsi, um, Kodak Film, Toyota. He has Nintendo giving him a video game. Um, you know, he's infiltrating the public consciousness that way. It's not like, Floyd Mayweather generating all this money, but not doing anything commercially because he can't, because of all of the the convictions of, of uh, assaulting women and that kind of thing. Tyson at that time was extraordinarily like his his image and persona was pretty clean. All of the negative negative stuff had been suppressed. Um, this film posits that there were payoffs going on while he was in high school to buy silence from people that he was crossing, attacking teachers, women, and that kind of stuff. Um, it's just interesting to go back to that time in the lead-up to Sphinx to just remember that he made $21 million at a time where Michael Jor- Jordan, in, in his prime, was earning $2 million a season. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, exactly so right. What do, you, what do you make of... Do you think... What do you make of Tyson peaking in 1988 against Spinks that we never saw that guy ever again? It kind of reminded me of the other touchstone culturally that I remember as a little kid, Michael Jackson putting out Thriller and thinking, he's only 23. If he's like the Beatles, it's just going to get better and better and better and better. And actually, it never got better. That was the peak. Yeah. I mean, there's not much to to say about it. I mean, we um, he was clearly on some sort of precipice because of his relationship with Robin Gibbons, because of the clearly bizarre mother issues he was having with Ruth Roper, uh, everybody trying to get a piece of him, not knowing who to trust. Um, apparently, if I remember correctly, he was on a great deal of um, antidepressants at the time, which at the time, that was a pretty primitive time to be on antidepressants, so who knows what effect they were having on him. Um, And you couple all that together, and you think about the amount of dedication. There are two things. One, the amount of dedication it takes to be the heavyweight champion of the world, the amount of sheer monomaniacal focus that that takes. That's one thing. But then the second thing is, and I've thought about this a lot, it's like Mike Tyson was also kind of an anomaly given his height, given his absence of a serious reach. So it's like he had to jack himself up to such a degree to be Mike Tyson. 
Because what Buster Douglas shows is like, well, if you're willing to not be scared and he comes in a little bit soft and you have a decent jab, it's not actually going to be that hard to beat Mike Tyson. And that was like one of those moments of epistemological break (laughs) to see Mike Tyson go down in, in Japan. I remember when I heard about it, I heard about it on the car radio because my dad was driving me and, and I, I, I almost fell out of my seat. Like I could not even fathom that this had happened. And I was so upset. I was inconsolable. And it's, I don't know. Like I think that, uh, yeah, I think like the price I mean, to be Mike Tyson proved to be too difficult as it probably did for Michael Jackson as well. Yeah, I mean, February 1990, I mean, the only people taking bets at that time was 42 to 1, but basically nobody wanted to take bets for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's amazing that he's only 24, 25 years old, and already, you know, Buster Douglas, I, I mean, I'd never heard of Buster Douglas. I knew he was like a top 10 contender or something at the time, but he was a nobody. It was the big fight that we were waiting for was Evander Holyfield, this up-and-coming, uh, you know, Hall of Fame-headed cruiserweight who was actually in the mm-hmm. front row watching the fight. But, I mean, also, interestingly, both the Spinks fight and Douglas, uh, Donald Trump is there for both of those fights, yeah. heavily involved, and quite quite something like his trajectory from there, you know, in 30 years, he's going to become... Well, not 30 years, 26 years, he's going to become president. Incredible. Yeah. It is incredible. There's something about this country. Yeah. Um, (laughs) That's for damn sure. And that he could have in 2016 Don King as proof that he's not racist. Do you remember that whole thing, trotting out an aged Don King, say Donald Trump isn't racist, and without it even mattering that it was Don King. Has Don... Has Don King ever not endorsed a president? Like I don't, I, I've, I've never heard of a president, somebody in the office that he wasn't claiming to be a diehard supporter of. Because he was with Obama, he was with certainly Trump, was with Reagan, was with Reagan, was with Bush. Um, I don't know about Clinton, but it's just fascinating. When I think I interviewed him, he was wearing a jean jacket full of Obama buttons, and had. No, no kind of internal conflict shifting to Trump when Trump was running, and you, you know, as you say, they trotted him out. What a figure! That's, and that's the real difference, you know, is that there there wasn't a situation where um, Barack Obama said, "Gosh, I really need a surrogate." Where's Don King? <laughs> yeah. Where the heck is um, Don King? Well, so let's let's get to to post. Post-Douglas, they take us straight into Indianapolis and the Black Expo and the black female beauty beauty pageant where he meets Desiree Washington, and they delve into that. Did you, so you, I mean, we touched on it a little earlier. You liked the way that that was presented, like like the the details of what happened in that hotel room and the different voices that they included. You You really liked the way they did that. I thought Barbara Koppel did a good job of covering it. Um, I do find it curious, and, and, and you know, this, was, this is one of my points, is that I think this was probably considered revolutionary in 1993, that she fashioned that last 
third of the film around a debate and discussion inside the black community mm. and about black men and black women and this this space, the Black Expo, which is so alien and foreign to white audiences, the Black Miss America pageant. How many white people in 1993 knew that was even a thing? And so like the separate kind of space, uh, I'm sure that was considered way, and it was ahead of its time in 1993, especially for a white filmmaker to do that. The problem with it, and this is just what, what I said earlier, is that it puts the racial analysis entirely, the burden of it is entirely on the black community in the film. Hmm. And, you know, and partially a little bit on, it puts a little bit on, on Tyson's lawyer and the kind of arguments he was making. Right. Um, I would argue that racism played a big role in the argument that the prosecution was making, but Koppel doesn't really hold him the task for that. Um, but I think that that analysis could have spread to the white savior stuff with Cuss that we talked about growing up in Brownsville and all kinds of other things that, that I think would have made for something that would be much more 2020, if you will. And that would be difficult to imagine in 2020, a film that didn't deal with those issues. I thought it was brilliant, um, the prosecutor, Jim Garrison, making that point that you're going to hear a story about a girl who may have exercised bad judgment but a crime is still a crime. And if you mm-hmm. w- walk into an alley wearing an expensive watch and you're in a neighborhood you shouldn't be in and it's 3 o'clock in the morning and somebody knocks you down and robs you, everything about you being there in that situation is not a good idea, but it doesn't make, does make it less of a crime what's happened to you to have that watch stolen. And they said all the members of the jury were shaking their heads. No, it doesn't. Yeah. That's a brilliant argument. There's a, uh, you know, it makes me a little uncomfortable, like like describing Tyson as being a bad neighborhood that you walk into. I mean, there's obviously some serious racial coding with that. Absolutely. But as an as an argument to push back against the idea that she was somehow asking for it any more than one would be asking to be robbed if they were in a bad neighborhood, that was uh, that that was able to connect. No doubt about it. How did you feel hearing about the details when you were a kid? Because, I mean, I was 10 years old, and I heard people defending Tyson saying, you know, this is a a woman, you know, all the women at the beauty pageant were giving phone numbers, and they mentioned that in the film. Uh, Why would she go to his apartment? She jumps into his limo, and and they're going to go see celebrities, he tells her, and then she comes back to his hotel room at 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, How did you process it? hearing those details then and the different voices they have talking about different takes of it versus now? Well, at the time, I was shocked into feeling a ton of sympathy with Desiree Washington. And I felt like it was my first foray into what I now understand to be known as, uh, as rape culture. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I'd ever been really confronted with that. And it was, uh, like I said at the beginning of this interview, I mean, it, it had a transformative effect on me. Um, I honestly, I, I started to go to take back the night marches, like anti-rape stuff and, and, and you know, marching and um, doing, that was the first political work I ever did in my life. And it hmm. was largely due to this film. Um, that film just, it also, that film collided with a lot of stuff I was thinking about, I'm sure, but 
I remember seeing this film as being so, like being so disgusted when, when Farrakhan said, you know, she says no, you know, she really means yes. Um, and and, and like, sh- wow. sorry to interrupt, but, but Farrakhan describes Tyson just attending the the beauty pageant as sending in a hawk into like a chicken mm-hmm. coop. Like, what yeah. do you expect he's going to do? It's like, yeah. wow. Also, got more than a little racism there. I mean, it's which is just really, and obviously a ton of sexism and misogyny in that statement. And, you know, and watching it now, I mean, I sort of said what I said. I think, like, watching it now, I think it's brilliant. I think it needs to be reseen. I think it's the best Tyson documentary. I think it fails some of the tests of 2020. But, you know, how many documentaries made 30 years ago are going to be perfect by day's eyes? So, you know, I give Barbara Koppel and I give the film a ton of credit. How much do you think the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill trial influenced the perception of this case? Wow, I don't know. I don't know. It obviously influenced the the women who spoke about the case. Um, It was mentioned briefly in the film, but maybe the film could have done a better job of showing that backdrop. But I don't really know. Um... I don't really know. There was there was a lot of outrage though in the country that, among sectors of the country, I should say, that Anita Hill wasn't believed. Right. But I don't. I can't say for sure if that affected the politics of the trial. But certainly, it was part of the the general cultural air that people were breathing at the time. I guess my my last question is well, a couple questions is just. When you when you were a kid and Tyson comes out in 1995, he's released after three and a half years. Where did you think he was going to go professionally? Did you think it was going to work out his career? And and my other question is just, what do you make of the fact that the biggest fight that boxing can make today, as far as uh, reaching casual fans? is a 54-year-old Mike Tyson fighting a 51-year-old Roy Jones Jr.? (laughs) I mean, the the second question, I mean, kind of speaks for itself, doesn't it? I mean, this is a sport that has committed uh, harikari in a way. I mean, because we see that the big fights still generate millions of eyeballs. You know, we see there's a thirst for combat sports with MMA. Uh, we see that there's no reason why boxing shouldn't be huge, but boxing has committed so many self-inflicted errors over the decades, whether it's through corruption, whether it's through the different federations. I mean, I used to be able to tell you, like, who was the top 10 of the WBA rankings, you know? I mean, imagine if the sport was still structured in a way where people knew the fighters and there was only one league, so to speak, you know? And, like how how that could then operate, and if the power was taken away from the promoters and there actually was a commissioner, you know, these things that other people have said forever. You know, I'm not saying anything new, but it's committed so many self-inflicted wounds. As for boxing, um, and Mike Tyson, when he came out, oh, I mean, I honestly thought, and I'm not just saying this, like like I was a pretty big boxing fan at the time. I, by that time, I watched the Buster Doug's fight, read a ton of articles about it. I thought he'd be chum in the water. For real fighters. Mm. I mean, coming out of jail after all that time, thinking about Razor Ruddock, and 
I thought he was just a very, very dangerous man. And, you know, an Evander's Evander. So didn't think too much about it, if I'm telling you the truth, in terms of what his future would be. Still, I mean, he was able to earn $400 million, (laughs) largely as a kind of sideshow. It's staggering, isn't it? Was his name Peter McNeely? Wasn't that the first guy he fought? Yep, yep. $25 million for that. I don't know where I pulled that out of, but Peter McNeely, I'm sure there'll be a 30 for 30 about him someday when they run out of other topics. Uh, I, I I, I actually attempted to interview him some years ago, I think it was the anniversary of the fight, and he used the N-word to describe himself in terms of saying, I'm a broke-ass N-word, and it was just, okay, thanks, Peter. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Keeping it it very Peter. Keeping it very New England. Wasn't he from uh, the Boston area? Yeah, yeah, but he was slurring. He's clearly suffered some serious consequences from his career getting hit in the head a lot. So it's a yeah, tough thing that. when you interview older boxers. I've certainly been there. Yeah, I Never don't easy. you know, I think facing Ali, that documentary where they interviewed his opponents, I think sixty percent of them required subtitles, even though English was their first language. Oof. Brutal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dave, thank you so much for this. I, I I was really happy to find somebody that loved this film as much as I did. Well, I knew you were excited about doing this interview to chop up this film. I hope it met expectations for you. Yeah, no, no, no. I just, uh, I encourage, I mean, if people haven't seen it, because it is so goddamn old. I mean, like you, I had an old VHS of it that I think I broke the ribbon of it from just watching so much. <laughs> it was I just love the way she laid it out. I mean, I wish I wish we had more female filmmakers having opportunities to make films about male figures because it's, it's always so interesting. Yeah, I agreed. Uh, I know I, I interviewed Ken Burns and Lynn Novak, his co-director, who's making a six-hour documentary on Hemingway. And one of the things I loved about that film, which they previewed for me, is is half the people behind the camera and half the people on camera are all women. And it, mm. it serves to allow somebody like Hemingway to have complexity for a change mm-hmm. like, and, and nuance when we're asking for it all over the place. He's somebody who's afforded so little nuance or complexity um, that it, it really made for such a rich, textured film. No, that's real talk right there. I agree with that. Yeah. So anyway, Dave, thank you so much. I know you're busy. I don't want to take up too much. Oh, no. Thank you. I appreciate it. Let me know when this is up. uh, Thanks, Dave. Be well. Yeah, likewise. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to No Happy Endings, which is produced by George Alarcone Swaby, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and is presented by The Ring.